Welcome to Bench Talk, the week in science. My name's Dave Robinson. And I'm Ashley Best. You're listening to WFMP Louisville, 106.5 FM. This show is about bringing science to the people. We'll be bringing you weekly updates on new research that's important to all of us and celebrating evidence-based policy. We've scoured the library stacks for interesting articles, climbed the hill to stay informed on science policy, and performed some experiments of our own. We're here as a conduit of all things science, so let's get started. Maybe you were there, but perhaps you aren't. Regardless, we've got another report on a conference, this time the 2018 Acres USA Conference on Eco-Agriculture. So this conference was basically about organic farming, and it was put on by a group called Acres USA. Now, Acres USA is a monthly magazine that was first published back in the 1970s by a poor dirt farmer's son by the name of Charles Walters Jr. Charles was born in Kansas. He grew up during the Dust Bowl, the Great Depression, and World War II. Charles Walters Jr. was trained as an economist, but he was profoundly affected by the publication in 1962 of Rachel Carson's book, Silent Spring. Walters saw the threats to family farming that was posed by the industrial model of agriculture, which was highly reliant on large machinery and chemicals, and he became an early advocate of organic farming. Charles Walters Jr. was a prolific writer, and he ended up founding a magazine in 1970 called Acres USA, and that magazine is still in publication today. Acres USA is advocating for what they call eco-agriculture, but that prefix eco stands for both ecological agriculture and economic agriculture. Oh, I remember it was years ago a local farmer friend of mine told me about the Acres Conference. So I was pretty excited to hear that Acres USA was going to have their 43rd annual conference right here in Louisville this year. The conference was held during the first week of December 2018 in the Marriott Hotel in downtown Louisville. The organizers of this conference were kind enough to give me a press pass to attend, and I figured since Louisville was such a foodie town these days, I thought our listeners might want to know a little bit about what was discussed at this conference. That's what I want to do today. There were many, many hundreds of people attending this conference, and as a whole, I would describe the attendees as being older. Perhaps two-thirds of them were older than 50. Predominantly white and male, maybe 60% men. Now, you know, the average American farmer now is 60 years old, so it's not surprising to see an older audience at this conference. But there were plenty of young people there, too, and I found that very gratifying. Not all of the audience members were farmers, however. That might be because this conference was held in a fairly big city, Louisville, where there are a lot of people who are gardeners, or people who are just interested in food, or people who are concerned about the environment. Though it's not surprising they were there at this national conference. There were a large number of Amish farmers at this conference, and what was particularly notable was the enthusiasm that both the Amish men and the Amish women showed at this conference. They were really into it. 
one of the first talks I attended at the Acres USA Eco Agriculture Conference was one by Vale Dixon from Virginia. She was speaking about how farmers can go organic and still practice no-till farming. Now the audience for this talk was huge. It was literally standing room only. In fact, they had to ask the speaker to repeat the talk again later that day because so many people were turned away at the door. The room was so crowded. The reason so many people wanted to hear what Miss Dixon had to say was because traditionally, no-till agriculture typically involves the application of a lot of chemical herbicides. No-till farming means that the soil is not actually plowed in like what has been done by farmers in the past. The dead stalks and the leaves are left on the surface of the field instead of plowing it in. There are a lot of advantages to no-till farming. For instance, it reduces soil erosion because that dead vegetation that's on the surface slows down the speed of raindrops when it rains. When the raindrops hit the soil, normally the soil particles are dislodged and they can flow down into a creek. But if you have a lot of vegetation on the ground, it can slow that process down. Water can also infiltrate into the soil better because heavy farm machinery is not compacting the soil like it normally would. And no-till farming also enhances the amount of organic matter in the soil. It's also believed that no-till encourages beneficial organisms in the soil like the good bacteria and earthworms. So no-till farming has a lot of advantages. Now even conventional farmers will often use a no-till approach, but what they'll do is they'll spray the weeds that show up in the field with some sort of a herbicide. Very often it's glyphosate, which is commonly known as Roundup. The reason weeds can be a problem in no-till is because you're not cultivating the ground. That's one of the big reasons why farmers cultivate at all. It's to dig in or it's to bury those weeds. But these organic farmers are trying to adopt a no-till farming approach without those herbicides. There were a couple of analogies that Dixon used that I liked. She said to think of your soil like your mother. You wouldn't leave your mother out in the field naked. So keep the soil covered, just like you would cover your mother. And I liked her metaphor of agricultural soil as a marketplace. Dixon pointed out that soil is a giant, complicated food web made up of plant roots from all different kinds of species of crop plant and weeds and native species. Then there's bacteria in there, fungi, protists, nematodes, earthworms, arthropods, insects, and higher animals. It's like each of these species is buying and selling stuff to each other. Not only are they consuming one another, but they're swapping waste products, they're trading excretions, sharing resources, creating voids like earthworms, and they're recycling minerals. So Vale Dixon's message was that we want to encourage this kind of a marketplace in all of our soils, whether it's on the farm, in the garden, or in our backyard. One of the most practical talks I attended at this conference was presented by two farmers from Greenfield Farms around Wooster, Ohio. This farm is a very successful cooperative founded by a group of Amish farmers about 15 years ago when they got together and realized that the vast majority of them were not able to make a living as full-time farmers. So they banded together to establish Greenfield Farms Cooperative as a way of sustaining their land, their community, and their culture. This presentation was by Raymond Yoder Jr. and Aaron Weaver, and their talk was called Strategies for Organic Vegetable Production Systems. <music>
Their farms are all certified organic and it was just fascinating to hear about the different management victories and challenges that they were facing. It wasn't a surprise to hear that most of the farmers in this co-op keep livestock in addition to growing cash crops. But what was a surprise was the sophistication of their operation. For instance, they use plastic mulch and drip irrigation. These organic farmers, like most organic farmers, were heavily dependent on cover crops to improve their soil. Cover crops are plants, and these farmers are using buckwheat, oats, peas, clover, rye, vetch. They grow these plants in the fields to add nutrients, to add organic matter, to improve the moisture level, to bring good microorganisms into the soil. They use cover crops to reduce soil erosion and to suppress weeds. These cover crop plants could be eaten by livestock or they could just be turned back into the soil to add some organic matter to the soil. So cover crops are an important tool for organic farmers because don't forget, they're not allowed to apply synthetic fertilizers to the soil. So this is a viable alternative. So it was interesting hearing all the little things they do at these farms to make their cooperative work, like adding molasses to their transplanted seedlings to encourage good microorganisms like planting mustard greens near their cabbage crops so the flea beetles that were eating the cabbage would be attracted by the mustard greens instead of the cash crop, like using iron phosphate to eliminate slugs and applying the natural plant hormone called cytokinin to encourage flowering in crops like eggplant. They raise their own beehives to encourage pollination and they purchase assassin bugs for the biological control of cucumber beetles. Whoa, wait a minute here. You might be having two questions right about now. First question might be, all this stuff you're talking about, it sounds like organic farming's an art, not a science. So that's the first question. Is organic farming an art or is it a science? And the second question might be, is organic farming really viable in the future? Can we feed the world with organic farming? All this stuff these farmers are doing, like adding molasses to the soil and seducing the flea beetles with mustard greens and applying iron phosphate to get rid of slugs and purchasing assassin bugs for the biological control of cucumber beetles. You can't expect large-scale farmers with hundreds and hundreds of acres doing all that stuff, can you? Well, that first question about whether organic farming is a science or is it an art I would certainly say it has elements of both, but it is more of a science than it is an art. Now most people wouldn't dream of asking this question about conventional agriculture because they know that the USDA spends millions of dollars every year funding agricultural research by scientists. They know that farmers often go to college to, to pursue some sort of a degree in crop science or what have you. People know that there are some huge private companies out there catering to farmers like Monsanto and ConAgra and John Deere, etc. They're selling their products to farmers, whether it be pesticides, fertilizers, seed for planting, farm equipment, etc. All that technology must mean that conventional agriculture is a science, right? But what about organic farming? Is that more science or is it more art? I attended several lectures at this conference by world-class, world-famous organic farmers and they talked quite a bit about the equipment and techniques they had to invent or improvise or jerry-rig, which makes you think that, oh, organic farming is sort of an art, isn't it? 
But if you spend enough time on any conventional farm, you'll realize that all farmers have to do that. All farmers are improvising and jerry-rigging from time to time, not just organic farmers. Although I bet organic farmers do a lot more inventing than conventional farmers do. Not because they want to, but because they have to. This Acres USA conference I'm telling you about also had a trade show, and I counted more than a hundred different businesses at this conference. There were companies selling soil amendments and natural fertilizers and natural pesticides. There were consulting companies and soil testing labs and trade agencies, etc. I'm not a farmer myself, but I can imagine how overwhelmed a farmer must feel when they're surrounded by all these options they have available to them. So whatever you want to call it, organic farming, or maybe it's ecological farming, sustainable agriculture, regenerative farming, biological farming, whatever you want to call it, my vote is for it to be thought of as more of a science than an art, just like with conventional farming. But organic farmers do have to be very creative and inventive. And I'd like to give you an example of that. In a minute, I want to play a short clip from the first keynote speaker of this Acres USA conference, Elliot Coleman. For an 80-year-old, Elliot Coleman gave a really energetic and fascinating talk. He told his personal story of how he joined the Back to Earth movement back in 1968. He started a farm in Maine back in 1968, and his farm was from scratch. It was a forested area. He primarily taught himself to grow food organically, and since he lived in Maine, he ended up specializing in cold weather farming, like using greenhouses. He visited Europe quite a bit to learn how market gardens there were operated. And Elliot Coleman is a big admirer of reading and studying. He has published his own books, which apparently are well received. And he spent some time at his talk encouraging the small farmers in the audience to self-educate as well. Elliot Coleman said that he considers himself a biologic farmer rather than an organic farmer because of his emphasis on the good microbes and animals like worms that can inhabit carefully managed farmland. He's quite ingenious about inventing new tools and techniques on the farm, and, and again, he placed a lot of emphasis on improving agricultural soil. You can hear what I mean by listening to this short clip of Mr. Coleman's talk. Well, I had a neighbor who had his poster, his uh, mailbox, mounted on an old plow, an old looks like break the prairie's plow. So I went over and I talked to him and I said, if I put in a post for your mailbox for the next couple of weeks, can I borrow your plow? He said, sure. <laughs> so I took that back to the farm, hooked that behind my Jeep, and dang it, that wasn't fun. Well, I was back there like the pioneer horse farmer, and we plowed this thing, except you have to realize this part of Maine, farming ended there. 30, 40 years ago. That's why it was only the plow holding up the mailbox. And at that point, I needed a disc arrow, but there wasn't a disc arrow. Well, I've always been convinced that if you look around far enough, there's a solution. And at the entrance to my farm, there was a pile of old granite that my predecessor hadn't needed when he had built his uh, cellar for his house years ago. And one of these piece pieces was a about 10 feet long and one foot by one foot like that. 
And I looked at that. I went, took the chief out there, dragged it out of the woods, hooked it on an angle behind the chief, and towed that thing over the rough field and harrowed it. I referred to this because of what was happening at the time as my 30 cent solution. Well, what was happening at the time was a group down in, uh, uh, in uh, Cape Cod called New Alchemy Institute were supposedly the new saviors of small farming. And they had raised a lot of money and they had built this center up on Prince Edward Island with this building filled with fish tanks and, and everything that was supposed to save the world of food. And I was at a conference and they gave a whole slideshow about this. And one of the pictures showed their fancy building with the fish tanks inside and the glass panels and everything. And it was within a couple hundred yards of the ocean in Prince Edward Island and there was some disturbed ground around it. So I raised my hand in the audience and I said, how much did that building cost? And they said, $300,000. And I said, do you know that any good peasant, give him a hoe and some seeds, could raise more food on the disturbed ground around that building than you could raise in that building? And give them a fishing rod, could catch more fish uh, on the edge of the ocean than you can raise in those tanks. And they said, next question, please. <laughs> uh, but so that was the $300,000 solution. I've always been convinced if you give people $300,000, they will spend it all. But I was interested in 30 cent solutions, so that's why I liked our 30 cent solution. And so after we've been working a while, the forest was cut back, and we actually had some farmland, and this was pretty neat. And we thought, okay, it's time to build our first greenhouse. Well, as a believer in 30 cent solutions, I had some cedar boards that we had cut down cedar trees, taken them to a neighbor's sawmill that I was building flats out of. And I just bent them over a frame like that, and by golly, if we didn't have a greenhouse. However, we were so far out in the country, there was no electricity, so there's no way we could pump water to the greenhouse. But again, there's always a way. That greenhouse is set up so you can take the top off whenever it's going to rain. And that's what we did. We would roll it back, it would rain, we'd put the top back on, and we had a greenhouse. Now the interesting thing about this was how one gets hooked into other people's ideas without understanding them. We had built that in that shape because we had seen a picture and that's what we thought a greenhouse looked like. But the next year, from a neighbor, we got a lot of straight poles. And we realized, oh, wow, it doesn't have to be curved. You can build a greenhouse like that. And that greenhouse actually made a good bit of money that winter. We erected it. You could erect it wherever you wanted over a bunch of leeks. And we were able to sell leeks all winter long out of that uh, homemade greenhouse. Where did we get fertility from? Well, this is another thing. The reason it was wonderful that the Nearing sold me this land for as little as they did was that land in that area where I live on the coast of Maine is incredibly expensive. This is vacation land. And all of the old farms are owned by vacationers. And they know they'd like the place to look nice, so they hire a local contractor to come in and mow the fields with a push on. I'm a devious little sort. I would run into them and say, wow, 
Isn't that beautiful? But isn't it dangerous to leave all that dry, flammable material in the field around your summer home? Especially with the cedar shingles and all that. And sure enough, they would hire me to come clean this up, take it back to my place, and we made more wonderful compost out of just uh, old, partially decomposed hay for many years. And we found a study from the University of Michigan, I think it was, indicating that if you sprinkle a little clay in with uh, hay, there was both an abiotic and a biotic effect, both a physical and a, and a biological, on helping it break down. And this was just a wonderful way of making great compost. So that was Elliot Coleman, organic farmer extraordinaire, who was speaking at the Acres USA conference that I'm telling you about. Now, sorry if the quality of that recording is a little iffy. I do know that the talks were professionally recorded at this conference, and I think they're available from AcresUSA.com, but I'm not advertising that for them. I'm just letting you know. Now, later in the talk, Mr. Coleman tried to convince the audience to take a biologic approach to crop production rather than just a technologic approach. And he stressed prevention of farm production problems rather than correcting the problem after it already emerged. So he was recommending farmers be proactive. He was critical of large-scale farms, even if they are organic farms, because while they may be technically considered organic, or certified organic, they involve artificial approaches like hydroponics and high input farming rather than building a sustainable, healthy soil in ways that a small farmer can practice economically. He said while these large farms can be technically considered organic, it's the small farmers who are looking to generate a soil and a system of cropping that sustains and even improves the land and without using so many commercial inputs. This might be where the art part of farming comes into play. Elliot Coleman thought that these smaller organic farmers should really be called or thought of as regenerative farmers rather than just organic farmers. Well, the audience seemed to agree since they gave Elliot Coleman a standing ovation at the end of his talk. Now, the other question you might be having is about the viability of organic agriculture. Can farmers consistently make a living growing food and fiber without the use of synthetic chemicals? Or is the idea of organic farming just something that sounds good, but it's not really practical? Is eco-farming primarily driven by ideology rather than efficiency? Can organic farmers feed our world of 9 or 10 billion people by the year 2050? There is an excellent review article about this question published in the February 3rd, 2016 issue of the journal Nature Plants. I'll post this article on our Facebook page. This article was written by a couple soil scientists at Washington State University, and the article is called Organic Agriculture in the 21st Century. And what they did is they reviewed a hundred different publications that were about organic farming and basically summarize them to answer that question about whether this is a system that's viable in the future. Now, many of these 100 papers that they reviewed for this article were actually meta-analyses themselves. In other words, they were reviews of larger numbers of articles. And so really, their one article is summarizing the results of hundreds of different research projects. Now, you already know how popular organic food has become 
Not only are there more natural food stores in town than before, but it seems like every mainline grocery store now has an organic food section. The number of acres of land devoted to organic farming throughout the world is skyrocketing. It's more than tripled in the last 18 years. And throughout the world, if you look at all the land that's devoted to organic farming, you're talking about a land area that's four times the size of Kentucky. That's a lot of land. There are currently more than 25,000 different organic operations here in the United States, which is more than double what it was 15 years ago. So organic farming is definitely a growing operation, no pun intended. So these researchers looked at four different areas. The first one was production. How does organic farming compare to conventional farming for production? This is the area where organic farming doesn't size up as well as conventional farming. Other meta-analysis that they reviewed concluded that organic systems yield from 8 to 25% lower yields than conventional farming. But it really depends on what crop you're actually talking about. There was less of a difference for organic versus conventional farming if you're looking at production of rice, soybean, corn, or forages. But if you're looking at organic wheat or organic fruits or vegetables, you're talking about a quarter to a third lower yields. And these lower yields don't even take into account the seasons that are devoted to a cover crop that just gets plowed into the, into the soil. That would reduce food production even more. Now they did conclude that organically grown food had a slightly better nutritional content than conventional, and they did find that it had fewer pesticide residues. The second aspect they examined was the environment. The authors concluded here that organic farms result in a much higher quality of soil, more biodiversity, lower energy use, and results in less water pollution because there's reduced runoff of fertilizers and pesticides. The third element of sustainability they examined was economics. Now there hasn't been as much research on the economics of organic farming, but what there has been has shown that the profitability of organic farms is higher than conventional farms because of the high prices consumers pay for the products. And that's in spite of the greater labor costs associated with organic farming. The fourth aspect they looked at was what they called well-being, which deals with social equity and the quality of life on farms or in farming communities. Organic farming provides more job opportunities for people in the community, and the workers that work on organic farms are exposed to lower amounts of pesticide. There's also better social interactions between farmers and consumers in organic systems, and the treatment of farm animals was more humane on organic farms compared to large feedlots and poultry units found on conventional farms. At the end of this review article, the authors conclude that even though only about 1% of the agricultural land in the world is currently under organic production, they find that, quote, although organic farming systems produce lower yields compared with conventional agriculture, they are more profitable and environmentally friendly and deliver equal or more nutritious foods with less to no pesticide residues. In addition, initial evidence indicates that organic agriculture is better at enhancing the delivery of ecosystem services other than yield, as well as some social sustainability benefits." Unquote. They basically finished their article saying that no one farm system alone is going to safely feed our planet of 9 to 10 billion people by the year 2050, but that organic farming has an important but currently untapped potential. 
Well, now I've done it. I've run out the time, and I'm not going to be able to tell you everything that I heard at the 2018 Acres USA conference on eco-agriculture. So if you don't mind, I'd like to continue to do that in another episode of Bench Talk. I've got some great sound clips from other famous farmers and experts that I'd like you to hear, including some advice from an experienced farm advocate on how to get your senators and representatives to actually listen to you. So keep your ears open for a future episode of Bench Talk. Bye for now. Thanks to Jason Shaw for letting us play his song, Thingamagic. Well, that's our show. Thanks for listening to Bench Talk, the weekend science. If you want to learn more about the show, go to our Facebook page. Just search for Bench Talk, two words, on Facebook. All of our shows are podcasted on SoundCloud, so just visit the station's website, forwardradio.org and scroll down to the program archives. And if you live outside of the Louisville area, you can still listen to us live streamed at that same website, forwardradio.org. This show is broadcast on 106.5 FM here in Louisville every Monday at 7.30 p.m. Eastern Time, 11.30 a.m. every Tuesday, and then 7.30 a.m. every Wednesday. Thank you for listening to WFMP 106.5 in Louisville, Kentucky, where there is still a little room for evidence-based rational analysis. Thank you.